6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Psalms, chapters 31 through 36. Well, we're continuing our exploration of the book of Psalms. And we'll be exploring Psalm 31 through 36 this evening. And uh, Psalms, of course, for those that may have just joined us, is Israel's hymnal. It's actually a hymn book we're going through. And it's really poetry, but surprisingly laced with strong theology. Particularly tonight, we're going to touch on some very fundamental issues. In the Hebrew, the Hebrew term for this book simply means praises. And 55 of these were actually addressed musically to the chief musician. And in the Greek, uh, we have terms, a poem to be sung in a stringed instrument is one of the terms, and psalter is a, a harp or stringed instrument, Someone, something like a zither, really. But it's from the Greek term for this book that we get our English book, the Psalms, which have, come, have become an idiom in their own right these days. But we need to stop and comment briefly, remind ourselves about the nature of poetry. Most of us in the West are familiar with poetry in its phonetic uh, design, the way it sounds. Uh, poems usually rhyme, and they also have rhythm. Rhyme is the parallelism of sound, and rhythm is the parallelism of time. It's tempo, if you will, different meters and so forth. So those are comfortable to us as we familiarize ourselves with Western poetry. However, we're talking about Hebrew poetry, which is very different. It deals with conceptual design, that not with... Sounds, not with rhyme or rhythm, but rather concepts. And it constantly deals in parallelisms, three different kinds at least. One is comparative, to help illuminate an idea. Another is contrastive, to show the opposites, the antithetic uh, designs. And completive, synthetic. I'll give you examples of these in a moment. We'll also incur a number of musical terms, but one of these is quite controversial. It's called selah. It occurs untranslated in a number of the Psalms, and it's commonly thought of as just being some kind of musical annotation. But there are a number of scholars that have come to the conclusion what it really is, it's a pause in which you are to connect ideas. When you see the word Selah, think of it as stop, look, and listen. Just pause, consider. What's, it's, it's a pause to connect ideas, not just a musical annotation. That's a suggestion. Parallelism, synonymous parallelism is when a second line restates the first. We'll encounter that a number of times tonight, where thing is said twice to, for emphasis in effect, two different ways. Synonymous parallelism. Who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Very poetic, but it's a poetry of ideas, not sounds. Then we have antithetic parallelism, sort of almost the opposite kind of thing. It's just the opposite. It, the lines are in contrast to each other. An example is, for evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. So that's the contrast in Psalm 37. Well, that'll be the, the next session. Synthetic parallelism. Uh, 
That's where each successive line expands or completes the meaning. Example is Psalm 19, we encountered some time ago. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The statutes, the commandments, the fear of the Lord, and the judgments of the Lord are all ideas that are not quite synonyms. They're a little bit different. And so each one expands the meaning of the next one. So that's synthetic parallelism. There are other ways to analyze this. I don't want to overdo this because we really want to go in a different direction altogether. We want to be sensitive to structure to some extent, to just appreciate it, but not to let it get in the way of our enjoying the Psalms. Now, they come from many sources. Uh, virtually half of them, 73 of them, are uh, ascribed to David. And several others that are not ascribed to David are clearly David's in style, at least, although they're called orphan psalms in the sense that they're uh, uh, not uh, uh, identified. Twelve of them are the, from the choir director himself, Asaph. And there's a handful of others, even a couple from Solomon. One from Moses, even. And 48 are untitled and anonymous. Some of them are regarded by scholars as probably having come from David because of the unique style that he has. But I want to put a caveat out here because it's easy for us, especially people that uh, are, have, have my limitations, which tend to be kind of technical, is to get tangled up in the technology, getting tangled up in the structure, getting over anal overly analytical in, the, in our approach. Let's pause and guard against doing that here in this particular book. There's a concept of a clean animal chewing the cud. That's the, that was the key to clean sacrifices. Animals that were known to chew the cud. And I don't think that's incidental. I'm not dealing in a pun here. I think that's the Holy Spirit's way of encouraging us to do the same thing. Jeremiah says, Thy words were found and I did eat them. And uh, uh, John says the same thing in Revelation chapter 10. We're, we're to not just bite into it, but we're to digest, chew, regurgitate, uh, uh, meditate is, 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 is an equivalent term. We want to avoid what some people call analysis paralysis. We've all been in situations where you can analyze something to death and lose the real meaning of it by doing so. And uh, so... Uh, we want to, don't want to blindfold our souls to the real message that God would have us glean from these psalms. And uh, so we're really looking for prayerful absorption rather than intellectual dissection. Generally, when we go through these expositional studies, an expositional study tries to deal with the text, what does it mean? And we're going through a historical book or if we're going through one of, uh, one of the epistles in the New Testament. There's a lot of benefit in getting into the grammar, understanding exactly what the text might mean. And so there's a real challenge there to do a sound job expositionally. And most of our studies, from Genesis to Revelation, are intended to be expositional studies. They're not exegetical studies. Those are studies that get into the grammar for its subtleties. We do that only when it's really necessary for some reason. We really deal with exposition. What does the text really uh, mean to us? And, uh, uh, but this is not that kind of a study. Uh, it's, in fact, I might mention here, it's, in many respects, it's kind of a frustrating exercise to try to go through the, through the Psalms the way we're going through them. Because what we really should be doing is taking each Psalm itself for an evening. To take it, chew on it, consider it, apply it, develop it devotionally. 
If we did that, we'd have 150 evenings and it would take us three years to go through. And uh, while I'm sure it would be rewarding, it would be at the expense of other things that we also need to address. So, so we've chosen to go at it a little differently. In fact, the real way to meditate is on your own. So it's my hope that we'll go through the Psalms, we'll highlight a few things, we'll add expositional notes as we go to give you some little bit of background. But that should not get in the way of what you should be doing, which is to take the psalm on your own time and, di and digest it. Before the session, we announced it in advance. You should have read them a few times. Uh, also, after the session, maybe some of the highlights we talk about might trigger some interest. I encourage you, in your own devotional reading, we're taking about five or so uh, a time, and that would mean that we'll finish our uh, product project here in about 30 weeks. We're, what, 7 eighths, something like that. Uh, in, in, we're, you know, not quite a third, but almost a third of the way through. So uh, we won't be, we'll be finishing this uh, uh, in a reasonable uh, uh, time as it is. But what you should be doing is during the week taking them and digesting them, and you'll find you will get your own favorites. Some of them will be, out of the 150 psalms, there'll be at least half a dozen, maybe more, that will become treasures to you. Special. And... Uh, but that's, that's a very personal kind of thing. And the real value of the Psalms is devotional. And uh, so it's not, a, it's not a group thing. It's not an intellectual thing. It's not an erudite thing. It's a personal, private thing to do that. So I encourage you to do that. Because the, each one is a gateway to the presence of God. And it should be reaching you where you're living. And, uh, uh, and, and indeed it will have given a chance. Now... The preceding psalms, up to 25, have been dramatic and sensational. But we're now in a section that's a little different. We're in a section that's more quiet, more personal, more intimate. And we'll sense that as we go through this group of 15. A little less familiar, but they have a lot to say to us. And uh, they're applicable. Each of these psalms have at least three tenses, past, present, and future. They have a past tense in the sense they emerge from some specific trial or circumstance that David was experiencing. And it's sometimes helpful to try to put yourself in his shoes. Many commentators try to ascribe certain psalms to specific elements of his history as recorded in 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, what have you. But um, many of those are conjectural. Uh, many of them are, uh, he's obviously in trouble, but exactly what led to that trouble is one of just conjecture. But there is a past tense we should be at least sensitive to. There's also a present tense of the psalm in that the psalm represents Israel today. Many of these psalms that replied to David in the past apply to David today and tomorrow in the future. But then as we talk about future, yes, you can do it in an abstract prophetic sense, refer to Israel, but the more important one is the, uh, the uh, uh, application to us personally in the future, our future, our tomorrow, our next week, our next month. And so I suggest this devotional paradigm. David's predicament and motives as the past tense of the psalm, whatever they might be, you'll come to your own conclusions. How this impacts Israel today and more importantly, how does it impact you today? So I'm going to say past, present, and personal. And anyone who's been to seminary knows this thing can't be true unless it always starts with the same letter, right? And I'm being facetious here, of course. But there's an alliteration that some people really cling to. I usually try to avoid, but in this case it might be useful as a mnemonic, a way to remember. 
past, present, and personal. How does it impact you today? And that should, that's a question you can validly ask with every one of the Psalms that we're just going to highlight as we go through. So let's go ahead. Let's take Psalm 31. And boy, does this have a popularity throughout history in some strange ways, as you'll see. And uh, this is about trusting the Lord, taking refuge in the Lord. No matter how difficult your circumstances might be, we're going to be confronted with people both in the psalm and who have applied it historically, that were in extremis in the ultimate difficulty. And that's what it's all about. And David was surrounded, obviously, by subversive whispers and campaigns and rebellion and all kinds of wicked conspiracies. And he was king, and yet he was on the run. And it was a very, very dark time for him, apparently. This is to the chief musician, so it was intended to be sung. Psalm of David. In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Wow. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in thy righteousness. These first three verses are quoted in Psalm 71. And um, it, it, 71 is untitled, but probably one of those that also was written by David. And uh, let me not be ashamed. And... Uh, that, this, that, that whole cry will be repeated in verse 17 of this psalm. And uh, how can a righteous Lord permit wicked people to prosper and overthrow his anointed king? Is That's the question that's lurking in David's mind. And uh, such a thing would indeed make David ashamed. He's the king. The Lord's anointed. And these wicked people are, are uh, prospering that are trying to overthrow him. So he begged God to act speedily. It's interesting how often he does that. He does that seven times through the Psalms. Specifically asking not only to act, but act speedily. And uh, reminds me of the person that prayed for patience. And he said, I need it right now. <laughs> and so, and so uh, okay. And deliver me in thy righteousness. Not David's righteousness. Heaven forbid. We don't want to be delivered in our righteousness. We want his righteousness to deliver us. And he can do that because of a cross that was erected in Judea some 2,000 years ago. In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in thy righteousness. I think every one of us in this room can, could, could have at one time uh, pleaded with God that, that very thing. He goes on, bow down thine ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be thou my strong rock. For a house of defense to save me. And uh, this probably was the first. This is tended to be sung, Dan. So I assume that that means it's the first rock concert. Right? No? Okay. Anyway. Be thou my strong rock. Who is, who is our rock? Jesus Christ. Paul says so in First Chronicles 10.4. The rock that followed him through history was, was Christ. For a house of defense to save me. For thou art my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for thy name's sake, lead me and guide me. For whose sake? My sake? No, thy name's sake. David saying, I'm your anointed king. Your reputation is on the line. Lead me. Guide me. And if you're a Christian, you can claim the same thing. God's reputation is at risk, it would seem. But you have to be as innocent as David was in this situation. And we clearly know he was. He goes on, pull me out of the net that they have laid privately for me, for thou art my strength. 
David needed guidance to avoid the traps that were being set for him. The word net here implies a pit that's covered with a net and then leaves on top of the net as a trap. That's the, that's the idiom that's in view here. And so he says, thou art my strength. That affirms his faith. For his own strength had failed. We'll discover in verse 10 that his own, he, he has come to the end of his own strength. And that's when God can, be, can begin to act. You know, we always hear God helps them who helps themselves. Whoever says that, it hasn't read his Bible. That's a common cliche that's wrong. God helps those who come to the end of themselves. Pull me out of the net that they have laid privately for me, for thou art my strength. Into thine hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. Boy, that's verse 5. That verse has probably been quoted by virtually every major saint you can imagine that suffered a martyr's death throughout history. It's astonishing. I'll go through that in a minute here. Into thy hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord, to God of truth. Into thy hand I commit my spirit. That echoes in our ears because that's what Jesus said as he died. That's what Stephen said when he became the first martyr and began a chain of martyrs that went throughout history. I have hated them that regard lying vanities, but I trust in the Lord. And uh, his, his enemies, the enemies of David, trusted lying vanities, worthless idols. That very, this, this was quoted by Jonah when he was in the whale. Chapter 2, verse 8 in Jonah. This phrase, in the first phrase in this psalm, Psalm 31 turns out to be a favorite throughout recorded history. In thee, Lord, do I put my trust. Those words were said by Cardinal Fisher, Bishop of Rochester in 1535 as he was martyred. St. Francis Xavier in 1552. Mir Angelique Alnald uh, in 1661, and dozens of others. In thee, Lord, do I put my trust. The very words, deliberately quoting Psalm 31 as they put flames to the fire or uh, whichever method they, they were torturing each one of these to death as they died. That was their exclamation. Verse 5 is also of this psalm, again, a popular uh, articulation in extremists. Our Lord on the cross said this, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Stephen, the first martyr of the church in Acts 7. Polycarp, when he's burned at the stake at Smyrna. St. Basil, St. Augustine. Charlemagne in 814. Thomas Becket, the Archbishop of Canterbury, when he was uh, executed in 1170. John Hus in 1415. That's an issue. The bishop that was condemning him Said, to, said as they condemned him, and now we commit thy soul to the devil. That's what they were saying. And his response was, as, he, as they killed him, I commit my spirit into thy hands, Lord Jesus Christ. Unto thee I commend my spirit whom thou hast redeemed. Jerome of Prague said the same thing. Christopher Columbus. By the way, Jerome of Prague was executed on the same spot as Hus was one year later. Christopher Columbus when he was executed, said the same thing, interestingly enough. Many people don't know that. Martin Luther commented on this. said, Blessed are they who die not only for the Lord as martyrs, not only in the Lord as believers, but likewise with the Lord as breathing forth their lives in the words, into thy hands I commend my spirit. In other words, using the very same phrase the Lord did. And of course, there's many others. I actually have a book that was listing... There must have been 20 or 30 of these, and I gave up trying to make a chronology because probably, unless you've had a lot of church history, many of these names might not be familiar. 
But it's certainly been a popular, uh, Psalm 31 has been a, among the favorites of most of the saints of history. David continues, I will be glad and rejoice in thy mercy, for thou hast considered my trouble, thou hast known my soul in adversities, and hast not shut me up into the hand of the enemy, thou hast set my feet in a large room. You know, verse 7 there is exactly what the Lord said about his people in Egypt. You may recall in Exodus. He saw the affliction of his people and so forth and took action. And uh, so, thou hast not shut me up in the hand of the enemy. Quite the contrary. Remember in John 10, whose hand are we in? The Lord's. It talks about that in John 10. And, and uh, you want to look at John chapter 10. Verses 27 to 30 for your notes. And thou hast set me my feet in a large room. In previous Psalms, we've noticed that when David's in trouble, he's said to be in a tight place. We use that same expression today in our vernacular. Boy, I'm in a tight place. I mean, I got no way to maneuver. And what does God do? Where did that kind of say? He puts us in a large room, gives us space, if you will. And when David was in trouble. What does he do? Verse 9 is the example. It's the prayer of the psalm. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. Mine eye is consumed with grief, yea, my soul and my belly. And indeed, when you're in trouble, it affects your organs. It affects your whole physical being, not just a mental thing. David continues, verse 10. For my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength faileth because of mine iniquity and my bones are consumed. He was on the run for 10 years. Hiding from caves and place to place and so forth. I was a reproach among all mine enemies, but especially among my neighbors and a fear of mine acquaintance. They that did see me without fled from me. Even his best friends and his neighbors didn't want to be seen with him. That must have hurt. Because many of those he thought at one time were his friends. He says, I am forgotten. As a dead man out of mind, I am like a broken vessel. For I have heard the slander of many. Oh boy. Slander. Here I'll resist the temptation to depart and go into a little side study of gossip the most painful of all sins. The venom does its silent work behind the scenes. For I've heard the slander of many. Fear was on every side. While they took counsel together against me, they devised to take away my life. The word fear, by the way, is not the usual word uh, fear here. It's terror. Terror. Dread. It's used six times by Jeremiah in the same sense. Now, if this is, some people conjecture that this, what gave rise to this psalm was the, the rebellion of Absalom as he tried to take away the throne of David. His own son tried to take it away from him. And while that was going on, David's primary counselor, his chief counselor, was a guy by the, an old man by the name of Ahithophel. And even Ahithophel turns against him and joins Absalom in the rebellion. And that's a mystery to many until you do a little bit of homework and discover that, um, that Ahithophel's son was Bathsheba's father. 
In other words, Bathsheba was Hittophel's granddaughter. And you get the impression that Ahithophel never forgave David for what he did to Bathsheba. But David continues, but I trusted in thee, O Lord. I said, I, thou art my God. I can think of somebody else that said that when he was confronted about putting his finger in nail prints. Remember Thomas? He was invited to do so. And I believe he fell to his knees when he said, thou art my Lord and my God. David continues, my times are in thy hand. Deliver me from the hand of mine enemies and from them that persecute me. My times are in thy hand. Are your times in God's hand? When things get really dark, when you get really frightened, when things really turn against you, remember the times are in God's hand. The circumstances are in a pair of crucified hands. Not yours, our Lord's. There's comfort in that, obviously. Shakespeare said it kind of, he said, Be thou as chaste as ice, as pure as snow, thou shalt not escape calumny. No matter how clean you are, no matter how perfect you are, you can count on being insulted, lied against, and so forth. Injured by slander, what have you. David continues, verse 16, Make thy face to shine upon thy servant. If his face is shining upon you, you've got to be close to him. That's part of the thought there. And indeed, the Lord's face did shine upon David. That is, of course, number six. That's the Old Testament benediction. Lord, bless thee, Lord. Make his face to shine upon thee, be gracious upon thee, and so forth. Make thy face shine upon thy servant. Save me for thy mercy's sake. It's interesting, David, while he announces that he's confessed his sins and is clean, he, he, lay, he rests his case on the Lord's reputation, not his own. It's the Lord's reputation that's at risk, is David's suggestion here. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Psalms. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. Or you can call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music